Welcome back to the 173rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including calls for people to stop using the word ceasefire when talking about the war in Gaza, a interesting piece about giving the speaker tempore a little bit more power or pro tem, a little bit more power, and a tax policy in Texas that is actually going to empower the rich and I think it's an interesting breakdown, so we're going to spend a, a little bit of time on that one. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So does the massive or the mounting shift of this narrative about our nation going to war over the last few years, I mean, we were kind of isolationist under Trump. Now, Biden, the sentiments have changed a little bit more of the pro-war side of both parties have come back out. And we're kind of giving different countries a blank check, and we're not necessarily resolving some of the core issues with where our money's going. So is this return, this shift back to a nation-at-war mindset, a nation around the world protecting democracy, is that something that you're in favor of seeing, not in favor of seeing? What implications do you think it has? I'd love to hear everybody's opinions. Throw them down there in the comment section. So let's jump to our first article that comes from Truth Out. Amid Gaza war, U.S. officials told not to use words like ceasefire or de-escalation. So obviously there have been calls from one side of the aisle to stop saying that ceasefire as a term or using that term is okay. We're calling for a ceasefire after a morally outrageous attack by Gaza is practically saying, yes, you can murder our citizens, and then we're just going to sit back and do nothing. That is the argument that has come from one side. And the other side is saying, well, we don't want to have Israel responding in kind and possibly hurting more civilians, which will be even more morally atrocious. So, yes, there should be a ceasefire. And there's calls from all over uh, that are even more varied than those, but those are two of the extremes. And this article wants to deep dive into what's going on, why these calls are coming out, and maybe the ideology behind them a little bit, and maybe criticize them, because obviously truth out comes from one side of the aisle. They're probably more in favor of Palestine in general, not speaking for all their writers, but if you had to take a, a poll, I would say a majority of their writers are probably a little bit more pro-Palestine, so you know that it's going to lean one way. So here's what's going on. Quote, as Israel on Friday bombarded civilians in Gaza and prepared for a ground invasion in response to Hamas's recent attack, U.S. State Department leadership reportedly instructed officials not to publicly use some terms that would advocate for less violence. According to HuffPost, which reviewed official emails, quote, State Department staff wrote that high-level officials do not want to press materials that include three specific phrases, de-escalation, ceasefire, and end to violence and bloodshed, and restoring calm. HuffPost noted that when reached for comment as on the directive, the State Department officials said they would not comment on internal communications. However, quickly, others you know, went out to blast the policy as disgusting, maddening, and pretty shocking. So 
there is this idea that if you call for a ceasefire, if you call for an end to the bloodshed, then you are siding with Palestine. You are saying that the actions of the Israeli people, the Israeli government, the IDF, they are not justified. And I think maybe, maybe if we were intellectually honest, and maybe if some of the people who made these arguments stuck to some of their principles, you can actually have two thoughts at once. That yes, that the Palestinian people should not be held responsible for Hamas's actions, and that they are being used as human shields, and also that what Hamas did was morally repugnant, and the Israeli people and the government have a right to defend themselves, but we should try to limit bloodshed. I feel like you can have those two thoughts simultaneously, or technically I'd listed three there. I think you can have all three of those thoughts simultaneously, but it is different when it's coming from a messaging standpoint from the United States government or the administration in power. You know, random people saying things like that versus the government saying that we need to limit the amount of hostilities or we need to limit the bloodshed. On an international or foreign policy stage, that actually sends a little bit of a different message. It portrays the idea that America isn't fully behind what Israel is doing. And even if that's not exactly the intent, everything is scrutinized on the world stage. Everything seems to have a double meaning. There's always going to be sides that read into something. So in these sort of things, you tend to see a lot more unambiguity. Okay, you either see strategic ambiguity where you kind of cover your intent like we've done with China to make it not 100% known whether we're going to back Taiwan or not to you know, make sure that they don't know what our response would be and maybe they'll side on the side of caution when going forward. But also there's the point where you want to be completely unambiguous, which is what Biden did, saying to some of the people in the Middle East, if you are trying to take advantage of this moment in Israel, don't. And with certain things like this, adding language like ceasefire or and to bloodshed could be perceived as the White House hedging their bets. So I understand why, from a strategical standpoint, they are actually saying this, because they want to project strength. They want to say they're 100% behind Israel. They don't want other nations to think that the U.S. is backing down, or they're saying that they won't 100% be behind Israel. So I could see why this sort of language could, in if you're looking at the worldview or the world through a worldview of real politique, with strength, power, power projection, then yes, I could understand how this worldview that, hey, don't say these certain types of words because they could be misinterpreted or they could be taken a very particular way. I understand why there's a strategic memo. It's not like there's an external memo saying, hey, we don't want any of our citizens saying, no, this is a strategic, strategic internal memo telling people how to message on this. But also it does leave some things to be desired, and that's what this article is trying to highlight. So what is the possible problem, or what does this really you know, get at the heart of? Quote, the reporting comes after U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken came under fire earlier this week for deleting a Sunday post on X, formerly Twitter, in which he said that during a conversation with Turkish Foreign Minister Hakan Fidad, I'm sorry for mispronouncing his name, I encourage Turkey's advocacy for a ceasefire and the release of all hostages held by Hamas immediately, noting HuffPost's article, Dawn Executive Director Sarah Lee Whitson 
directly called out the secretary, writing on social media, quote, this is your leadership for peace and security, Anthony Blinken. Code Pink co-founder Media Benjamin took aim at President Joe Biden. It just gets worse and worse, she said. Biden is giving a total green light for Israel's collective punishment of Gazans. Anthony Zinkus, an adjunct faculty member at Adelaide and Columbia Universities, asked, What is wrong with these people? Nina Turner, a senior fellow at the Institute of Race, Peace, and Political Economy, stressed that there is no peace without de-escalation, end quote. So there are so many different takes here. And you have one that really scrutinizes is Anthony Blinken for his call for a ceasefire, saying, oh, well, are you saying that Israel doesn't have the right to defend themselves? You have other ones calling out the people that were calling out Anthony Blinken's comments. So you can see there's lots of different derision here. And I think the reason that they point this out is because do you really want your Secretary of State, do you really want the President, do you really want your administration in the White House to completely fold on their positions just because there's a little bit of public outrage? And let's be clear, sometimes they need to fold on terrible positions, most definitely. I'm not disagreeing with that, and maybe this is one of those takes. But what Truthout is pointing out here is they're just trying to listen to the masses. They're just putting their finger up and seeing where the wind is blowing, and then they're going about their day in response to that. No, you need to show leadership. If you say it, stick by it. Or, I take that back, think about what you're saying before you say it. And obviously, this was a post that was put out in haste and then was taken down. Or the other or alternative is it was put out being 100% serious and then they saw where the winds were blowing and they said, oh, no, 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 we take it back. We're going to delete that post. And that's where I find it completely, completely outrageous. If this is a pure response to public opinion, then no, I don't like it. And I, I'm... Let's be clear. I understand that we put people in that office to represent our values, but also the system that we have is not solely so that you can bend to the will of the people. Sometimes you know more than the people. Sometimes you have more expertise than the people that elected you. And sometimes you need to listen. You need to understand what's actually harming the people in your district. You need to understand how they feel about certain things, but how you address it is not a policy decision that they always get to make. It is sometimes your expertise in the area that is needed. And let's be clear, I don't necessarily agree with his comments that an absolute ceasefire is needed. But what I'm saying is bending to people on Twitter, which isn't even reality, which isn't even a majority of the U.S. population, that's what I have an issue with. And that's where I agree with Truthout when they're saying that just bending because someone says something that is critical of you is not the way to go about this, especially in foreign politics. That looks weak. You know when I just talked about real politique, the projection of strength? It looks weak when you fold to your own populace when you say something you truly believe. If you didn't truly believe in the ceasefire thing, then why'd you put it out in the first place? And I'm not trying to back Anthony Blinken into a box. I'm not trying to say that, oh, morally reprehensible, blah, blah. I'm not trying to do any of that. He's not going to see this. This is not going to blow up. But trust me, we need to have a strong leader who has convictions and will stick by them. And we have seen that, at least for some, to some degree, 
for Joe Biden. And when I say that, yes, I know he has done a few different comments where we don't necessarily need to have the Israeli people occupying uh, Gaza, and that is a little bit of mitigation, that is a little bit of hedging, and that is a part of his job. He can't just outright say, oh yeah, Israel has a free pass to do whatever they want. They could subjugate these people. No, I, I think if you're looking towards the ideal of democracy, even if they're defending themselves, they go defend themselves, they get rid of the Hamas terrorists, and then they get out. I feel like that's a admirable goal, and I can understand why Joe Biden is hedging in that way. But there were reports that his team wanted to calm down some of the language. They didn't want it to be so pro-Israel where he was going to outright say, if anybody tries to do anything, then they're going to be messing up. Don't take advantage of the situation. Some of that language reportedly comes directly from Joe Biden pushing his staff a little bit harder. And this is convictions. You could tell in the way that he was speaking. And let's be clear, I don't love Joe Biden on a whole bunch of things, but you could tell by the way he was speaking that he had conviction behind those words. He meant what he said, and it seemed strong. Even if it's coming out of somebody who is a little bit older, who could present it in a better way, even it honestly speaks more to the fact that that sounded semi-strong out of a person that we know is in a mental state that is not the best right now, who is having a hard time with certain phrases. So if I'm going to give him admiration, if I'm going to say that I like the job he's doing, you got to give credit where credit is due. And I think this is one of those cases. I think Joe Biden has the conviction. Stick with it. Don't be the flagpole or the flag you know, floating in the wind. No. You are the wind. You are the current. You are the one that will shape opinion. You are the one that will shape the response. Use your strength. Be a leader. That's why you were put into the White House. You got experience. Please use it. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from the Washington Examiner. This one is a, you know, it's an interesting headline. Give the speaker pro tempe, or I believe the proper way to say it is pro tem. Give him the speaker power. Now, that's a, that's an interesting one, uh, and I, I haven't done the craziest amount of reading about this. I've gone through a few different articles about the potential of giving the speaker the power, or the pro tem speaker the power of the speaker normally, and I feel like it kind of subverts the rules a little bit, like he's supposed to reside over the speaker election and getting a new speaker in there, and yet... In order to get some crisis packages through, they're just going to give him the power of speaker. Well, then why can't you just extend his pro temp uh, speakership for a long time and just keep giving him the power to authorize different things? I feel like it it kind of undermines the point. But there is you know something else that the Washington Examiner wants to point out here. They want to talk about the practicality of it and the possible implications. And I will definitely criticize where I think it is due. Quote, it has been almost two weeks since every Democrat in the House joined eight Republicans to oust Rep. Kevin McCarthy from the Speaker's office. It does not appear that House Republicans are even a single step closer to picking a new leader. Time is running out. The temporary spending authority that triggered the Republican malcontent coup against McCarthy runs out in four weeks. Congressional action to authorize aid to Israel in its fight against Hamas may come before then. When those deadlines approach, the House will have to vote to give temporary speaker powers to the pro-temp speaker, Patrick McHenry. Why not just vote to give McHenry those powers now until someone in the Republican Party conference can find the 
the 217 votes needed to become speaker, end quote. The reason I have a issue with this way of going about it is, one, it violates precedent. I mean, there are people that argue that, yes, the speaker, the temporary speaker can do more than just sit there and be a figurehead. But one, it violates precedent. Two, it opens the door to the same thing being done on the opposite side of the aisle. When we violate the rules of the House, well, one side does it and the other side ends up taking advantage. And let's be clear, I don't care which side does it. It's just not okay. If you have one side and the filibuster, the other side's going to take advantage of it, then it's going to become a political tool. Just, just don't. Okay, go through the process. Elect a new speaker. And yes, I understand there's going to be a crisis coming. There's going to be a shutdown coming. The need to put in some funding for Israel versus Hamas, that's definitely going to be important. But if it is so pressing, it is so important, use it as motivation, use it as a rallying cry to get behind a actual speaker. And I know, I know, it seems like not a big deal. Like, oh, just give them the temporary power. But I ask you this. If you're able to just give a speaker temporary power then what is to say in the future when somebody is ousted and they appoint a pro tem speaker and then the caucus or the conference can't come to a decision in order to replace the speaker that they just kicked out of there, then that pro tem speaker has all the powers of a speaker. They can just go about the business without having the conference actually decide on somebody. No, no, no. You need an actual leader. You need a leader that everybody's going to agree to, that someone, that one person who is actually going to hold things together is actually liable to the entire party rather than being someone that was just appointed to fulfill the job and therefore they could just fulfill their agenda because they don't have to negotiate with everybody. They don't have to be uh, up for a vacation. And when I say that, they don't have to be up to be vacated because they were just appointed giving these pro tem powers, even though it's a rare situation, as we've seen since it's the first time that a House Speaker has been vacated. But guess what? Normally when the rules are broken, normally when there's that first time, it happens a lot afterwards. And especially in this era where you have populists, where you have progressives, where you have mainstreamers, mainline Republicans, Democrats, you're seeing a lot more division and it could become a lot more popular and it could become a lot more necessary. So no, put the rules back in place. Make sure you already violated one norm. Don't violate another norm. Don't let the fear mongering of, hey, these big things are coming up, stop you from fulfilling your job. Get somebody in that office that you can all agree upon, that you can get some concessions out of, that can actually work with everybody in the party. It looks like Jordan might be that guy here soon, but he still doesn't seem to have the votes. At least that's what some insider talk seems to be betraying. And no, when I say insider talk, not me getting the insider talk, the chit chat that's coming across on different podcasts and different uh, news sites that have a few different insiders there on the Hill. So we'll, we'll see. I I hope that Jordan can get it through, and not just because I like Jordan. It's because I want someone to actually have the office, and we don't have to deal with this BS argument, oh, that it's a crisis, and we just need to give the powers to the Speaker Pro Tem. No, don't violate this. If it's on principle alone, don't violate the norms. But also don't open the door for the situation that I just talked about where a speaker pro tem is not actually liable to anybody because he wasn't put in there. He wasn't put in there via vote. It's just a risky scenario. And guess what? 
if it happens that there's one person who is a, a you know a moderate, so let's say a Democrat, it happens to the Democratic Party, and the Republicans they don't like the current speaker, so they get along with it, but they appoint a speaker pro tem who's a little bit more progressive. And then that progressive isn't liable to anybody. They can authorize things. They can go about their business in a way that the Republicans wouldn't necessarily like. While the Democrats are trying to scuffle around and figure it out, they can't come to a consensus. Guess what? That's not going to benefit you because obviously they already have a majority. And if they're putting through some progressive measures, that maybe the whole party can't agree on who the speaker should be, but they may love some of the package deals or the different benefits that come from that really progressive package that the temporary speaker is putting through, they'll all vote for it and they can get it passed. I mean, just think about the repercussions. Don't violate the norms, even if it benefits you now, because it will come back to bite you in the butt. I absolutely guarantee it. All right. So what's the emergency? Because, you know, they're giving it uh, this idea that it's they're kind of fear mongering. Hey, this needs to be solved now. There's an emergency. Let's describe what the emergency is. They kind of touched on in the first paragraph, but I want to talk about it here. Quote, it takes only a majority of those votes to do so. In an emergency, House Republicans could quickly vote to give McHenry full speaker power temporarily to pass legislation. This is a safety valve everybody knows exists which has taken pressure off Republicans to select a new speaker immediately. That is why, after two weeks, no one seems in a rush. House Republicans should take the speakership drama off stage. Con- constant front-page infighting communications or communicates to the voters that Republicans can't govern. When someone finally does come up with the 217 votes needed, bring it to the floor ASAP, but not before. Until then, McHenry... give the McHenry the power to make the House function. Or let the House sit there, let the people actually see the dysfunction in the Republican Party. And I know, strategically, I would agree. It is not okay. Leave it behind closed doors. But if you're someone who wants to actually see change, if you want the system to be a little bit better, no, keep it public. Keep it out there. Let the people see what's going on so then their voices can be heard and things can change. But strategically, if you're on the inside, I 100% agree. Don't do it. You better keep that locked up. You better keep all the infighting behind closed door. Don't let too much information out. Don't seem like the incompetent party 100%. If it was the Democrats in the same way, I would give them the same strategical analysis. Because guess what? The people want Congress to do its job. They want the House to do its job. They may not know everything that goes into it, but they want them to do their job. They don't want to see the chaos, even though they do love a little bit of their soap opera. When it comes down to entertainment, they want to see it. When it comes down to putting people in power to govern the nation, they definitely don't. All right, let's jump to our last article that comes from the nation. Texas Republicans want to ban the state from taxing the rich. So interesting. That's a pre- that's a pretty bold proclamation that they want to outright ban taxing the rich in Texas. So what is this article acting actually talking about? Well, there are some changes that are coming down the pipeline that is happening at a state level that these this article doesn't necessarily you know, look on in a favorable light. Let's put it that way. Quote, in November, Texas voters will decide on an amendment to the state constitution known as P- 
Proposition 3. The amendment approved by the Texas legislator in May would prohibit the creation of a wealth tax in the Lone Star State, including a tax on the difference between the assets and liabilities of an individual or family. In other words, Proposition 3 would prevent lawmakers from taxing the rich or taxing anybody on their purely based on their wealth. Interesting. I, I don't think it's just the rich. While it will benefit the rich, no doubt, it applies equally across the board. So that framing is a little disingenuous. Quote, Texas has historically been friendly to the ultra-rich and their pockets. With the state constitution forbidding an individual income tax, this year, over 45 Texans with a combined net worth of almost $700 billion in industries like oil, gas, real estate, and tech were listed among the Forbes ranking of the wealthiest Americans. The richest people in the world, Elon Musk, moved Tesla, the richest person in the world, Elon Musk, moved Tesla's headquarters to Austin in 2021, complaining that California was a state of overregulation, over litigation, and over taxation. And what is Elon Musk? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of my biased stance here, hundred percent. So call me out if you want to. But what has Elon Musk done? He has decided to build an entire, basically, town around SpaceX. He is still innovating. He's sending up large rockets. He's helping with the Ares missions to the moon. He's constantly improving. He's bringing in jobs and tax revenue from those people that work there, that live there, that pay some sort of property tax on the houses that they own or whether they're buying groceries, things like that. So he's bringing in revenue, not only in contracts, but in people. And you're saying that this is a bad thing. Why? You're, you're saying that he should be taxed directly. Why? I'm not saying that I don't agree. Maybe he should be taxed. But give me a better argument than just saying, oh, it's preventing the rich from getting taxed. And that's a bad thing. The, you know, it doesn't necessarily give too much of a reason directly for that part of it. But then it does go on to talk about how the overall taxes, they're not saying that Elon Musk needs to be taxed because of why. They're saying that this proposition is bad because it will disadvantage some of the people in the lower rungs of society. And I, I kind of want to dive into this one a little bit. And I want to talk about these narratives that the Texas Republicans are talking about and how this article tries to call them out. Quote, politicians in Texas continually use false narratives pushed by the 1% to oppose the wealth tax, incorrectly claiming that it would harm the everyday voter. House Joint Resolution 132 by Representative Cole Hefner takes a proactive step to ban the state from ever imposing a wealth tax on its citizens, ensuring that Texans take home more of their hard-earned paycheck, writes Texas Insider. Yet, despite the amendment's advocates' arguments to the contrary, that the state that have already implemented such laws have lower taxes on an average citizen than states that don't. This year, legislators in states like Connecticut and Washington have proposed a wealth tax, but more often than not, arguments against, like these being held by the Texas legislators, fail to disclose who benefits. By prohibiting a wealth tax, Proposition 3 helps widen the existing gap between the rich and the poor, putting businesses, corporations, and billionaires over the average citizen. So, yeah, I, I think there's a there could be an interesting argument there if they wanted to extrapolate and say, 
Well, since you're not going to have a direct wealth tax or an income tax, then you're going to have a, a property tax. And a property tax is probably, even though some people's property is worth less than the billionaires and the millionaires, you probably, in Texas at least, you're going to have a system where the property tax is actually going to take up more a larger percentage of people's incomes and take-home pay than the billionaires' income and take-home pay. And that disadvantages them. Sure, I, I think you could definitely, definitely make that argument. But don't forget that when they're creating this law, they're not saying, ah, yes, 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 we're only going to remove the taxes from the rich people and we're going to leave them on the poor people. Well, we're, we're only going to get rid of wealth taxes for the wealthy people. It also affects the younger people as well. They're not going to create a progressive system where as you start to move up the ladder, you're going to get taxed more. Whether you agree or dis disagree with that, it is a totally, under the law, it is a totally equal proposition. So to pretend as though that this bill itself is going to affect one group a different way is not a lie. But to present it as simply having the benefit only for the rich people is not true. It is intent, its intent is to help everybody and to be equal across the board in how it is going to be implemented. Now, are the effects going to be different? Yes, but that is how everything is. Because if you made a law that mitigates every single side effect for every different group, you are going to spend so much time going into minutia that it's practically going to be hell for anybody to actually put that out and enforce it. All right, let's jump to our final article, The Daily Delight, that comes from News 18. Cats try to catch pigeon. What happened next will make you laugh. So, you know, cats, they, they kind of lose their edge a little bit when they've been inside for too long, when they've, you know, been in the urban areas and they've, and it's not necessarily a good thing for them. I mean, great for domesticated cats, but, you know, for their hunting abilities, not necessarily. Quote, cats are known for their curious and mischievous nature. This behavior often lands them in trouble, but their hilarious actions never fail to make us laugh. It is not new that cats prey on birds and in cities, it is mostly pigeons, as they are common, a common sight. Recently, a video of a group of cats eyeing a pigeon is doing the rounds on social media. And, you know, while these cats definitely make it seem that they're making a valiant attempt, uh, they ultimately fail. And it is kind of hilarious. Quotes even, quote, what's even more humorous is seeing how the pigeon outsmarted the cats and saved its life. A video shared on Instagram by a page called Show, Should Have Cat shows three cats attempting to climb on top of a car while curiously watching a bird perched there, end quote. And if you want to see any of these cute photos or videos, or you want to read any of today's articles, there's the link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday, short form, a little bit less formal, not so many quotes, just off the top of the head. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.